Happy Thursday, everybody, and welcome to episode 84 of the Snyder Cut. I am Jeff Snyder, Collider's senior film reporter, and we've got a jam-packed show today, so let's jump in. The big story of the week, I think, I mean, you know, it was all the, the merger madness. It was AT&T getting rid of Warner Media, uh, you know, talking about selling it to Discovery of all places, uh, and that would just be a gigantic streamer um, that would just certainly be able to compete with the Netflix and, and the Disney Plus. Um, and then there was also, you know, rumors that Amazon had been talking to MGM about buying them for, I don't know, roughly $9 billion. I think MGM wanted $10 billion. Uh, don't think that they were going to get any extra bites there. Um, so, yeah, let's, I guess, talk, talk about what this would all mean. I mean... Um, I, it, it's a it's a real sign that like AT&T just had no idea what the hell it was doing. Like they didn't realize how expensive it was going to be. I'm sure it like killed them, you know, when they're paying for Wonder Woman 1984 or whatever, right? And then they decide to change release plans and, and put the movie on HBO Max. Now they're like, wait a second, now we got to shell out $20, 30000000 million to Gal Gadot and, and uh, Patty Jenkins. Like, you know, to, to cover people's back ends and stuff like that. Like, I, I wonder if AT&T really knew what it was getting into um, with that. <laughs> because, you know, this business is all about keeping talent happy. You don't keep talent happy, then you're not going to get top talent for, you know, the next project that you want to shell out $200 million on. Um, but yeah, I, I just don't think if they had the stomach for it. Like you could see in, in some of the quotes that, you know, came out earlier in the week, like, they're like, well, you know, we need to really focus on our core business, uh, which is telecommunications. So phones. So it's like, it's, I, I believe this is basically what Richard Rushfield said in the, in the Angler, even though I, I, I uh, should really resubscribe to that. He was like, oh, the phone company realized that they should focus on phones. They just woke up one morning and, and realized that like, oh, this business, uh, obviously so many people, you know, corporations uh, and also just private individual billionaires. They come to Hollywood and they realize they don't have the stomach for it um, or the checkbook. Like, <laughs> I mean, Warner Brothers, like HBO Max, I think it was committing like to $150 billion worth of content over the next three years. Uh, I don't know, it was, it was some crazy figure like that. I mean, you know, plus, not just HBO Max, but in terms of, you know, Warner Brothers and, and all that stuff, they were spending a lot of money. And I think it, you know, may have impacted what AT&T felt they could do on the, on the telecom side. So they're like, all right, we got rid of this. Uh, Jason Kalar, who has been, you know, steering the ship for the last year or so, he's on his way out. And I was like, please, I wish I could get a job like that to just come in and be the villain and make a bunch of unpopular decisions and get a $52 million payday for, for my troubles. Like, even if Jason Collar never gets another job again after how sort of disastrous his, his tenure was at HBO Max, like, he's set for life. So, like, what does he care? Um, you know, we're, I mean, we're going to talk about Dune, I think, a little bit later in the show, but, uh, you know, in Deadline's analysis, I guess we can just talk about it now, Deadline sort of said, you know, we're hearing that, that Dune is going to walk back that, that day and date HBO Max decision, and, and it's going to debut at Venice, the Venice Film Festival, and then it's going to be in theaters exclusively for a time before, uh, before making its way to HBO Max. So, you know, Joanna Fuentes, who is the head of, of Corpcom at Warner Brothers, she came out and debunked that on Twitter saying, no, nope, you know, plans are still the same. I think Jeff Goldsmith, who's, uh, you know, who is their distribution head, so said, no, you know, nothing's changed. Still, still on track for October 1st, day and date. But it's like, and, and no disrespect to those two individuals, they're just doing their job. And, and, and I, you know, nothing has changed. They're right. Nothing has changed at this moment. Uh, however, those decisions were Jason Kalar's decisions. I mean, well, not, I guess they were, a, they were AT&T's decisions that Jason Kalar then had to, you know, announce and, and, and enforce uh, and impose. Um, but Jason Kalar is not going to make it to October. He has already hired a large to negotiate his exit. Uh, so, 
October's still a long way away. It's like five more months away. And I told you when this announcement happened that I almost guaranteed that Warner Brothers could change its mind. Like there's nothing preventing them from doing that. So uh, I, 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 you know, Deadline comes out with this report saying that, you know, Warner Brothers had signed a deal with Regal uh, for, for starting in 2022, right? To respect the 45 day theatrical window. Uh, so Deadline says that that was going to apply to Dune. It was just going to be, you know, enforced a, a couple of months earlier, that deal. Um, wasn't going to happen with, with every movie, but Dune seemed like a good bet, if only just because like Denis Villeneuve's quotes about the whole situation were like brutal. He was like tearing AT&T and Warner Brothers apart for this. Plus Warner Brothers didn't even like pay for the movie. Legendary paid for three quarters of it. Uh, so I think that in the end, external pressure will win out so that even though there are denials right now, I'm sorry, I have got to take the word of deadline over Corpcom. Like, I don't, I mean, there's no question that the trades get things wrong from time to time. Uh, after this report was up, it changed very minimal. Um, basically, the 45-day window thing went away, right, At, with regards to Dune. It just said it will be in theaters for some period of time. So I could see that. Like, I, I think that is what could happen, whether it's 30 days or 17 days like Universal was doing or a week, you know, like, like Netflix uh, did with Army of the Dead just last week, right? You know, Army of the Dead exclusive in theaters for a week, and now it's coming to Netflix uh, tomorrow. I do believe that at the end of the day, that is what will happen with Dune. Dune will either get a one or two and a half week ex exclusive run in theaters, likely IMAX theaters, and then we'll be on HBO Max. So I'm not calling anybody a liar at, at Warner Brothers or, or HBO Max. The, the, the plan has not officially changed. The, these people work for Jason Kalar now and they're there to you know, uh, communicate his message. But like I said, he's going to be out and that message is probably going to change. And I, I, I just, I don't think Deadline would just make that up or pull it out of thin air. I'm sure that is exactly what they are hearing. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if, if, if it also affected Matrix 4 and if it happened to Clint Eastwood. Because, you know, I mean, Clint Eastwood, that, that's his home base. Like he makes movies for Warner Brothers. And I'm just trying to like imagine them sitting Clint Eastwood down and be like, all right, Clint, this time, this, you know, this movie you thought you were out there shooting uh, is now going to be available day and date in December at home on HBO Max. So he'd probably be like, what the fuck is HBO Max? I made a movie for theaters, not for televisions. And I just wouldn't be surprised if Clint Eastwood really pushed back against the current release plan for his movie for Cry Macho. Um, you know, on the Amazon MGM front, that those rumors have been around for, for months. Uh, I guess it was the information who broke this. I, I need to do a better job of maybe paying attention to the, the information because they definitely, you know, have some good scoops. Uh, clearly, they've got some sources on Wall Street, I would, I would say. Um, does $9 million seem like a, a decent figure for MGM? Sure. I mean, you're getting a lot. You're getting a, a, one of you know the best libraries in town. Um, you're getting the Rocky movies, the Creed movies, the Bond movies. Obviously, the Bond you know Bond's the big one. Um, you know, then Amazon would have the rights to to make Bond movies going forward, or at least to do, maybe if not make them to then to distribute them. I I assume that the, that's how that uh, arrangement works with Eon, although I'm not privy to the uh, to the particulars. Um, I mean, Amazon needs a, a better library, particularly as studios maybe, you know, pull some of their top streaming titles from aggregate streamers to sort of build up their own. Um, I think Amazon makes more sense for MGM than Apple. I think Apple is a little bit, skews a little bit younger and, and edgier. And I don't know how much the MGM library would really help them. Uh, Amazon seems like it's used a little bit older. You know, it's, it's a lot of people who use it to ship packages. It's not like there's a lot of teenagers shipping packages and stuff. I think it's, it's adults who, who have Amazon Prime, you know, for that 
you know, the, the mail service essentially. And then they have Amazon, you know, uh, Prime Video as a sort of add on to that. So I, I don't know. Um, I, I think those people would get more out of the MGM library than maybe subscribers to Apple. Uh, what else to say? I think it just goes to show that like nobody knows anything in this business. So anyone who tells you that they've figured out the magic formula for success is lying. Um, and I think we're going to see more of this. I, th I think Sony, Paramount, maybe not, maybe maybe less Paramount these days, but like Sony and Lionsgate, those are high pro high profile uh, takeover targets for sure. Um, and I'm you know. That, that that's no secret but we can move on from the boring business stuff i know that's not why you guys watch this podcast we can talk about superhero shit like batgirl bringing on adil l arby and bilal fala the directors of bad boys for life which was the biggest high, like the highest grossing movie at the u.s domestic box office last year i mean i think it was number three overall worldwide it made north of 400 million dollars which in, a, in the middle of a pandemic ain't too shabby for for a, a franchise no less that it seemed like it was sort of on its last legs or like you know the, the sequel should have happened 10 15 years earlier uh, I, I think that those guys you, you know th they didn't quite get the credit that they deserve for that movie and not, not that i thought it was great i mean that part of it was like kind of silly but i i liked it um I, I still prefer the original Bad Boys, but Bad Boys for Life was was a worthy sequel. So what, you know, how do they get this job? Because I'm hearing like, you know, we were, we were joking around the company Slack, like, oh, we can't have a man direct Batgirl. Let's get two men to do it. You know, why isn't this being directed by a woman? But here's the thing. So uh, Adil and Bilal just did Miss Marvel for Disney+. Plus. And they're also working on this movie Rebel, which is about like a 13-year-old who, whose father dies and he's at a crossroads. So if you look at Miss Marvel and this movie Rebel that they're doing, it's clear that they're comfortable working with young protagonists. Uh, and, and I suspect that, they're, that, that their approach to youth skewing material is what got them this job on Batgirl. I certainly think that they're a better fit for it than, than Joss Whedon. I mean, I could see how you know, when Joss Whedon was announced, he was like, oh, the guy between behind, you know, Buffy and Firefly, or, you know, all these, all these shows like, yeah, yeah, of course he could do it. Um, you know, he said that he claimed that he could not come up with a story. I don't know if there was other stuff going on behind the scenes, given what we know now know about uh, Joss Whedon. But I, to me, this is an upgrade. I don't know what's going on with Beverly Hills Cop 4. I, I kind of doubt that, that that'll ever happen. Um, yeah, like I, I, I don't know. It could have been interesting seeing them direct Eddie Murphy in that sequel, but uh, part of me thinks that they probably dodged a bullet and will be able to do more with with, with Batgirl, which is being planned as an HBO Max original. Uh, you know that that is one thing that that is kind of like upsetting. Like, okay, so Batgirl and Blue Beetle, which is like the first Latino superhero, and uh, I feel like there's a couple of others that are that are. Or it's static, is it static shock? Is that it? Like these sort of, um, I wouldn't say pushing the envelope, but they're breaking new ground, some of these superhero movies that, that uh, DC is planning. But, you know, they're just shipping those ones off to HBO Max, which seems counterintuitive to me. I mean, I know everything is all about, you know, for the streaming service these days, but like, I, I just don't know how you can just neglect your core business, which is still theatrical. I mean, you know, you, you'll never be able to reach, to, to get a, as many subscribers. It would take so many subscribers to like make up the grosses of like a billion dollar movie. Um, although I guess, you know, the, the way they're looking at it is, it, you know, those subscribers aren't just paying for, for one month to watch that one particular movie. You know, they're in it for the long haul. Um, speaking of superheroes in DC, and I mean, I assume this is for HBO Max, the Green Lantern series uh, signed Jeremy Irvin to play Alan Scott, who is a gay Green Lantern. He is a gay superhero. Uh, Jeremy Irvin jo joining Finn Whitrock, who I kind of just assumed was going to be playing the, the gay superhero. Um, Jeremy Irvine, it's funny, I had not thought about this kid in years 
until he popped up on a friend's like Instagram story. Like uh, they were like in London, maybe it may have even, I'm not sure if it was Spielberg's daughter, uh, Destry, who, who I follow and uh, am a fan of, but uh, I saw some photo of Jeremy Irvine recently out at some restaurant in London. And I was like, geez, like whatever happened to that guy? Like handpicked by Steven Spielberg to star in War Horse. And then like, you know, he did a couple of other movies after, but like nothing had had any impact. He went nowhere. I thought he was like done. I thought he was kind of like not even acting anymore and was retired. Um, so, I, you know, it's kind of an interesting hire. Cause like, I feel like this kid had a lot of potential and it didn't quite happen for him. Um, so maybe Green Lantern Corps is the thing. I mean, he's got a good look and I thought he was good in War Horse. I thought he was a good actor. Um, you know, as far as like the star pairing for like a superhero show, Jeremy Irvine and Finn Whitrock, I don't know. It leaves something to be desired, I think. Uh, particularly on that title where it's like, you know, it already has a bad connotation in DC fans' minds. Like, I just wouldn't go messing around with it, but yeah, I don't know. Ber- it's, who is it? It's Berlanti and uh, somebody, somebody else. I don't know. Just, just not, uh, not, not feeling it, not feeling it. Uh, was there any other superhero stuff? I mean, no, we had big sequel news. Um, John Boyega and Joe Cornish back for Attack the Block 2. Never thought that that would happen or, or see the light of day, but I guess Joe Corners just got, you know, tired of playing the Hollywood game. He's like, I'm going to just get John and, and the gang back together. We're going to sequelize my my big hit. Uh, I think it's great. You know, Boyega, that was like his, the first time I saw him, it was his first big movie role was in Attack the Block. And, you know, now he's a gigantic star. So if this in- inspires more people to see the original Attack the Block, all the better. I hope that, you know, these guys have a bigger budget to work with this time around, although part of the charm of the original was that low budget. Um, yeah, I- I- I'm excited for this. Like, this is cool. We got news on Knives Out 2. A lot of casting this week. Last week, it was uh, Catherine Hahn joining. Uh, that was just, just after we finished taping the show. So it was, it was, first it was Dave Bautista, Ed Norton, Janelle Monet. Then they had Catherine Hahn hot off of WandaVision and a hell of a showing at uh, the MTV Movie Awards, by the way. Then they added Leslie Odom Jr. this week from One Night in Miami. And today it was Kate Hudson. Um, hell of a cast that, that, that they are assembling here. I can't imagine that the budget is the same as the first film, which was around 40 million. I mean, just with like all this talent, plus you got to buy out, you know, if anybody has back end deals or points or things like that. I know, uh, excuse me. Hollywood Reporter had mentioned in a story last week that, that like one of the two deal points for the Netflix Nabs Out deal was that Daniel Craig star in both movies and that both movies have a similar budget to the first film. I don't really how it, I see, I don't really see how that's possible. Uh, but, you know, if they go over, I don't think Netflix is sweating it too much. They, you can clearly see the excitement for the sequel. Um, Boris Kitt at Hollywood Reporter, who broke the Kate Hudson news, I believe, I think he sort of hinted that they were looking for a fashion designer of sorts, uh, and that Kate Hudson could be playing the, the, the fashion designer. I heard that they were looking for a politician and that it's Catherine Hahn who may be playing a, a politician in the film. Um, but clearly this is, you know, I think that the scope is going to be a little bit larger, larger than just like a family in a, in a big house. You know, I think you're going to see a lot more locations and really going to open up the action a little bit more, I think, for this. Uh, Indiana Jones 5 added Boyd Holbrook and Seanette Renee Wilson. It is a Logan reunion as Boyd Holbrook, you know, played the, the bad guy in James Mangold's Logan. Um, I really like Boyd Holbrook. I thought he was great in Logan. Uh, I hung out with him at Sundance for a little bit one year. He just seemed like a, a, a chill guy. You know, the last couple of movies haven't been great. I didn't love In the Shadow of the Moon. I didn't, you know, the, that, that Predator movie he was in was awful. Um, but uh, I'm very curious to see who he's playing in Indiana Jones. I am not as familiar with the work of Seanette Renee Wilson, but it's great to see, you know, uh, th- th- this franchise add, add some diversity because I, I, I think it, it definitely needs it. Uh, Hocus Pocus 2, finally, it's now official. Everybody's back. SJP, Kathy Najimy, Bette Midler, 
and Fletcher coming in to direct um, with, with uh, Adam Shankman moving to executive producer. And it sounds like this will be available on Disney Plus in 2022. Sort of lit up. I mean, you know, as soon as they announced Hocus Pocus 2, I told you, I think, I don't even know if I was at Collider. Uh, that's how far back this goes, but I probably was at Collider. Um, yeah, as soon as they announced Hocus Pocus 2, obviously these three women were, were coming back. There's no point in even like hiring a writer to write this movie unless the three of them are interested in reprising their roles for a boatload of cash. So this is kind of anticlimactic, but at the same time, the internet rejoiced, and, and, and I, I get that. Uh, all right, that was all like the, the hot sequel news. Um, late, late on Wednesday, Cher announced that, that Universal is mounting a biopic, I believe it was Universal, a biopic of her life uh, with screenwriter Eric Roth, who's, who is one of the greats, and the producers of Mamma Mia. Cher was in the Mamma Mia sequel. Uh, yeah, this makes total sense. I mean, if you're doing Bee Gees and Kiss, like Cher is huge. She's an icon. She's a diva. Uh, you know, casting is going to be tough for sure. I, I would imagine, but uh, I'm glad that, that that she has like you know someone who she trusts and Eric Roth writing this. She she certainly has the you know musical library and, and, and things like that. Um. I'm sure it'll explore her years with Sonny and, and uh, you know, Sonny Bono and I Got You Babe and, and all that stuff. But uh, listen, she, she's as deserving as anybody else of, of the biopic treatment. And I'm sure that that will be a big hit for, for the studio. Uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus signing on to star in an A24 movie. It's not the kind of A24 movie that I personally hoped for, but it's still, you know, exciting nonetheless. It is a mother-daughter fairy tale titled Tuesday. Tuesday is the name of her daughter, who will be played by Lola Pettigrew. And then the movie's going to star uh, Arinze Kenne, who was great in I'm Your Woman, opposite Rachel Brosnahan. I was really impressed by his performance. Um, I would have loved to have seen, like, Julie Louis-Dreyfus sort of play against type and, and do, like, an Adam Sandler type of uncut gems. It's just something where you're like, I've never seen this actor in this kind of movie before, and, and it's totally wild. Um, Julie Louis does not really go... Uh, she doesn't really take to the big screen very often. She was just in Downhill last year, which I liked and thought she was worthy of a Golden Globe nomination. Uh, I, I thought she was very, very good in that. Uh, but like, I like her in Enough Said and, and you know, Christmas Vacation. And it's like when, when she actually does a movie, it's usually pretty good. Um, so even though Mother Daughter Fairy Tale isn't like making me salivate, you got to give it a chance, right? It's, it's she, she is, to me, the most gifted comedian comedian of, of all time. Uh, between, you know, her work on Seinfeld. I didn't, I didn't watch New Adventures of Old Christine. I didn't even watch Veep. But to win, you know, eight primetime Emmys for three different shows, I mean, she, she, she's the best. What do you want me to say? Um, vampire stuff, Travis Knight directing the, the vampire movie Uprising for Netflix. Uh, Travis Knight did, you know, Bumblebee and, and he was, he's the CEO of Leica. He, he, you know, oversaw the Leica stuff, directed Kubo and the Two Strings. He was going to do the Uncharted movie and then, you know, probably wisely backed out of that one. Um, so yeah, vampires are next for him. Just as they are for apparently Natalie Emanuel and Garrett Hedlund who are doing The Bride. Over at Screen Gems, this is a horror movie. It seems to have some connection to, you know, like the the Bride of Dracula, something like that. <clears throat> um, yeah, vampires, man, they're, they're they're making a comeback. Don't forget, J uh, Jamie Foxx also has one at Netflix called Day Shift. Uh, vampires, they never get old, literally, and the genre itself. Uh, you know what's getting a little old? Pet Cemetery. Do we keep needing all these pet cemeteries? Lindsay Beer, the screenwriter, uh, signing on to make her directorial debut with another Pet Cemetery reboot for Paramount Plus. Um, I really like both of the original two Pet Cemeteries. The, this new one from from Colsh and Widmeyer did not do it for me at all. I mean, it wasn't terrible, but it wasn't just wasn't very good, and, and I felt like it kind of play the same beats as, as Mary Lambert's movie. I do love oh, the line in this 
I'm sure Justin wrote it. You know, it was something like giving, given that like the first film had had a female director, it was really important to the studio execs to find a female director for this one. Like, okay, so was it not important to find a female director on, on the last reboot? Was that with Jason Clark and Amy Simons? Like, it's just, <laughs> oh man. Uh, Enola Holmes too. I think we already talked about that last week with Henry Cavill and, and Millie Bobby Brown. I never saw Enola Holmes, but it seemed like a no-brainer that, that, that they would do a sequel for that one. Um, Netflix also got Jenna Ortega to play Wednesday Adams. This is a story I've been tracking for months. And, uh, oh man. You know, you put in a call to these streamers and they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that, that, we don't know if it's going to work out. We'll see. But everyone else has already called. So, like, then they end up going wide with the announcement and then they put it on their social channels even before you can even get a story out. Like, if I hit publish at noon, which is when the embargo is, that story's not going to appear online till 12.02, 12.04, who knows? depending on the system. Then you got to tweet it out. Now you're at 12.05, 12.06. And Netflix just puts it up at noon. And it's like, well, wait a second. I, I was holding this for you. And, and like Jenna Ortega puts it up on her social channels. I'm just like so fucking sick of streamers and stars and everybody trying to just like announce their own news. It, listen, if I don't find out about it, go ahead, announce away. But like if I'm doing you the favor of, I found out about this, you want me to hold and sit tight, like make it worth a reporter's while. Like, what are we doing ourselves? What are we what are we killing ourselves for to then have the streamers or the stars just put it out on their own? Like, if that's the case, put it out as soon as you get the offer. Offer comes in, you call your team, I want you to negotiate this, I want to do this show, and then just fucking tweet it out. Just do it then and save us all the fucking hassle because it really is just not worth it. I mean, people always I mean, it's why I, it's why I just don't track news as hard as, as I used to, because there's no upside to it. I'm going to put so much energy into things, and then they're just going to send bullet points anyway that they want me to follow. You know, no, there's just no individualism like in in reporting anymore, and every, everyone is just so under the thumb of the streamers and the networks because they don't want their access to be cut off. Right? There's so many stories I can tell you right now. And then I'm 99% sure will, will pan out and be true. But I can't tell you because if I do, that whoever's paying for that content, whatever streamer or network, whatever, they're going to be upset. And then they're going to go to, to Frosty and say, well, you know, you guys aren't going to be able to interview our talent anymore. Or you're not going to be sent any, any more uh, screeners. And then it's like, okay, well, now we're weighing the cost of one scoop that's going to be aggregated, you know, within minutes for you know all these interviews that drive traffic and reviews that drive traffic and it's not worth it and so like news real journalism get, get it's pushed to the bottom of the pile because it's too scary it's it's, it's totally fucked up and, and not right but uh i feel like you know i could say that this, that goes for like half the stories on here um west ball who is doing that ape street that we haven't heard much about in in a little while uh signing on to direct something called the time runner do people just think of West Ball and runners in the title? Like, I know he did Maze Runner. Did he direct Runner Runner? I don't even know. He didn't. I know. But there's no plot details on Time Runner, so I, there's not much to discuss. But uh, West Ball, talented filmmaker. Hope he finds the right project. Angela Robinson, remaking The Hunger. I never saw the t Tony Scott's The Hunger, and I love Tony Scott. Um, it was one of those movies that, like, I just never really got what it was about. I knew it's a vampire movie, but it also, it seemed like a sexy, steamy vampire movie. Yeah, who's in it? Like Jacqueline Bissett or something? I don't know. Angela Robinson, I didn't see the Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman, uh, but but it makes sense because that had some steamy stuff to it too. Um, makes sense. She seems like a good hire for, for The Hunger. Yeah, I, you know, I, I won't argue that one. Speck and Gordon doing a Lyle Lyle Crocodile movie for Sony. It's based on a hit kids book. Uh, this one was interesting. Rebecca Ferguson signing on to star an Apple sci-fi series, Wool. Wool has been in development for nearly a decade. First, it was uh, over at Fox, where like Steve Zalian and Ridley Scott were going to produce it. Then it was going to be a series for AMC from LaToya Morgan. 
And now it's an Apple show from Graham Yost and Morton Tildum, who did the imitation game. Uh, yeah, Rebecca, for, I mean, I always like this, this project, like the, the, the air on the earth's surface has become toxic, forcing this community into like this gigantic underground silo. Uh, I don't know if, if I, I believe Rebecca Ferguson's probably playing the lead. And I think the lead is the sheriff's wife who's an engineer, although I'm not entirely sure because I actually have not read Wall myself. But there's a bunch of books in the series, um, uh, the, the Silo series as it's known. And I just think, I'm glad that, that this project found a, a good home at Apple that has money behind it. Uh, and it has a solid anchor in, in Rebecca Ferguson. All right, we talked about the Dune stuff. Issa Rae coming on to uh, host and produce a new season, a new iteration, really, of Project Greenlight um, that I think is going to be exclusively for female filmmakers. I don't know if it's female filmmakers of color or just female filmmakers, but uh, I think that, like, the mentors that they're working with are, are female. I think the contestants will be female. Uh, and I think this is probably the way to, to do Project Greenlight. Um, I'll still be very curious what the ratings end up being, but... Uh, Easter Egg seems like the, the right person, you know, after Matt and Ben, you know, did, did the original. She seems like a, a good model um, to take on this new iteration of the show. Plus she's HBO's, you know, homegrown talent. Uh, NBC announced, right, Law & Order Thursdays. They're not doing any comedies. I think it's been like decades since NBC did not program like a, a sitcom on Thursday nights. But basically what they're going to do is Law & Order for the Defense, which is their new show that sort of pivots them away from, from the police. They still need to cast that one. I hope that they go out and get a big star uh, because, you know, I mean, you need, not that these are huge A-list stars, just like generally speaking, but like within the worlds of, of TV, Mariska Hargitay and Chris Maloney, like they're TV icons and you have them anchoring the other two shows. So I feel like you need some type of TV icon anchoring this new show it should probably be somebody of color i think it, you know i i would have like maybe a black lead uh you know a black owned criminal defense firm but like i don't know if, if you didn't like what if it was like kelsey Grammer? you know uh kelsey Grammer as as the owner of some criminal defense firm or some someone along those lines who has some type of tv icon status attached to them maybe it'd be fucking alec baldwin who knows uh, right, so the nine o'clock would be SVU and 10 o'clock would be organized crime. Um, sign me up for all that. You know, there was a story a couple weeks ago that I, I, I missed. Uh, THR had it. It was like about Universal apologizing for using a male actor to dub Laverne Cox uh, in the Italian version of Promising Young Woman. Um, and this is something that's been going on. Like, I, I think Soul also used white actors to voice black characters. And this was its whole, you know, reason for being is, you know, Soul is, is the, the first Pixar movie with a black protagonist. And so to use white actors to, to provide the voices, I mean, I'm, I'm conflicted because on one hand, you know, maybe you just like how a white actor sounds, right? Like, I don't think you have to sound black to to voice a black character or whatever. Um, so it's like, on one hand, if it's a, it's just a voice, like your blackness, your whiteness, it doesn't really play a part in it. Plus, it, you know, it's an animated movie. But on the other hand, like how hard would it be to hire a black voice actor to dub a, a you know, a, a black character? Um, I think that one is almost trickier than the, than the Laverne Cox situation because Laverne Cox, I mean, that's just, I feel like a little bit more disrespectful, um, you know, to have uh, someone who's pre presenting as a woman, she's tra uh, transgender, she's female, and to have a man voice her, yeah, it just seems like a slap in the face a bit. Um, some, someone, I think in that article called it like a, an act of violence, which, I, you know, that seems like hyperbole to me. Um, I, I think the issue is also, it, it, it dovetails with that of like the, the practice of wigging in the stuntman community where a man will put on a wig to double, to be the stunt double for a female character. Like, you know, why can't you just hire a woman to double for a woman? I mean, you know, you'd think though, judging by the outrage around some of these things that, that, 
people would expect you to have a clone. Like, well, you know, here, here's this actor or actress who's, who's a certain shade of, of black. Why can't we find a stunt double, you know, who's the exact same shade or whatever? Um, that doesn't always exist, you know? Like, you, 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 or maybe that person's working on another production halfway around the world, and so you have to make do, and, and you have to darken someone's skin so that it matches. Like, these are just sort of time-tested Hollywood practices, and I understand that they don't look good, right? It doesn't, the, the it just doesn't look good. <laughs> I'm trying, I'm, I'm blanking on the word that I'm looking for, the optics. But it's like, I mean, if you don't do stuff like that, here's what happens, okay? You get like the stunt double on that Deadpool 2 shoot, who's like, you know, we don't want to put a male stuntman on the motorcycle, even though they're experienced. We don't want to, you know, have to do the wigging thing here. So let's just get, uh, you know, th this black stunt woman. Um, but she wasn't ready. She was, she was not experienced. Uh, now, I'm sure certain safety issues, protocols may have been ignored or whatever in that situation. But from what I read about that situation, it sounds like she was just not ready. Uh, but because she was a match, go and do it. I'd rather have someone get offended about, you know, darkening a stunt person's skin or putting a wig on them than having someone who's just ill-prepared for the job risk their life and, and die on set doing a stunt for a movie. Like, that's fucking crazy. And, and that is just such a sad situation. So, like, while, while I get, you know, th that that's you, you want to play it as close as possible to, 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 you know, what it is, whether it's a black, if it's a black ca uh, character or actor, get a black stunt double. If it's a woman, get a female stunt double. Uh, if it's a, uh, you know, I get that, but I just don't think we can lose sight of the bigger picture in all of this. Uh, but I'm glad THR wrote about the dubbing issue because I, that, that did seem particularly egregious. It just seemed insulting. Like if I was Laverne Cox, wouldn't want a man dubbing me, you know, in, in countries around the world. I'd, I'd want to sound feminine. Um, so, so, so I, I certainly get that one. And, and soul, it just like, there's so many black voice actors out there looking for work. Uh, it just doesn't, I don't know if the effort wasn't made or if it, the effort was made and it was just like, okay, we have these 10 black voices and then we have these two, you know, white voices, like which voice do you sound better? Forget the name, forget the race, just tell, listen to the voices blind and tell me which voice is better. I, I don't know. And, and I wish that we could find out some of that stuff, uh, you know, about these, these controversial hiring practices, I would call them. Um, you know, it's not always possible to get the full story and all the specifics. So, so just kudos to, to Hollywood Reporter for even shining a light on the issue in the first place. Uh, last, last week I did the Sam Jackson ranked feature. Um, I did his top 10 movies and I don't know, I don't think I talked about it on the podcast, but like, you know, the guy's been in a zillion movies. He's the biggest box office star in the world. I definitely had to make some tough cuts. I decided in the end, like, really, it was like, do I want to include the MCU in this list? Because I pitched, you know, should there be a sidebar to Sam Jackson's top 10 movies ranked where we rank his top 10 MCU movies? I certainly wasn't going to go back and watch them all, let alone pay attention to Nick Fury's fucking appearances. But when that idea sort of got shot down, it was like, does the MCU belong on this list or not? And in the end, I felt like, no, maybe cumulatively, collectively, like Nick Fury is one of his top 10 greatest characters. But just looking at like one movie at a time, and I probably would, you know, for, for the uh, purposes of this argument, I'm going to say the Avengers is his best. You know, if I'm putting you know, a supporting role in the Avengers up against a, a movie where he has a really juicy part, it's tough for me to, to, to put the Avengers over it. Particularly since that character hasn't really had a huge like arc. There's not a ton of change in, in that performance. He just kind of is wearing an eye patch or not. And it's not, you know, barks out some, some cool lines. Um, so like, I love changing lanes and, and even Lakeview Terrace, which was not on the list, uh, the negotiator. So I only had so many slots and I did want to represent those kind of, you know, B movie thrillers. Cause I think that Sam Jackson does those movies for a reason. Like it's not just, the money, which I'm sure ain't bad, but like, I think he, that's the kind of material he's genuinely interested in, just how he wound up in something like Spiral, which was absolutely 
not good. I mean, I don't know who was out there defending Spiral. It was very, very disappointing in my opinion. Uh, but I had to, you know, had to have Spike Lee represented, and I know a lot of people were like, "Oh, you got to have Jungle Fever on there." But uh, I just, I just don't associate Jungle Fever. I don't think of that as a Sam Jackson movie. Um, he's good in it, but like, and I, I don't think it'd do the right thing as a Sam Jackson movie either. But if I had, if I was going to represent Spike Lee, I wanted to do it with do the right thing, and you know, because Sam Jackson is an important character in that movie as Senor Love Daddy. He's sort of the audience surrogate. Um. I had to represent Tarantino a few times and, and uh, you know, to me, Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown are one and two. Um, Django, he's amazing as Steven. So I just did not have room for Hateful Eight. I mean, I'm not the world's biggest Hateful, fa hate, yeah, hateful eight, eight fan anyways. Sorry. Um, but yes, you know, Major Marquis Warren, he, he's he's really good in that movie. I just don't know that I could call that one of his most iconic characters. Had to have Unbreakable on there. Rewatched that, you know, last week or two weeks ago with Dad. Sam Jackson is just incredible in that movie. And like, you know, had to have Die Hard. Like, Die Hard with a Vengeance. It's, he's amazing in that issue. So Sam Jackson clearly has a lot of amazing movies. I had to leave off both the Snake movies, Snakes on a Plane, Black Snake Moan, uh, check out the feature on collider.com for, for my explanations as to what made the cut and why things did not. Uh, this week, all of Hollywood held a, the big screen is back event moderated by my pal, Scotty Mance. Uh, sounds like the studios just didn't have the goods this time. Like they've sort of already tipped their hand and, and released trailers and footage of everything because that's all they've really had to, to do the last year. Right. Uh, so there weren't a lot of surprises. It sounds like the reporters who covered the event were really kind of upset. It seems like it was it's way too long, three hours, to just watch movie clips uh, that you've already seen. And I saw some of the movies being advertised. It wasn't just like, you know, the big movies. It was like IFC doing presentations for Holler. And I mean, there were movies that are just like, is this even for theaters? This is like something that's going to play at the Landmark for like a week or two, like, I don't know. I, I probably would have been upset if I was in the audience as well. What was funny to me was that um, Arnold Schwarzenegger introduced it all, right? I think he did a big thing about, you know, it's important to get back to movie theaters and I wouldn't be here if it weren't for movie theaters. And then like two hours later, he announced a new, uh, that Netflix had bought his uh, new spy series from, from Skydance, which is going to pair him with Monica Barbaro, who's in uh, Top Gun Maverick, a movie that is definitely going to theaters. You just have to love like the, the, the double speak, right? Um, it sounds like In the Heights, you know, continued to go over really well at that presentation. And the only, uh, the other movie that seemed to pop was Pig with, the, with Nicolas Cage and Alex Wolf um, about like a guy who's like prize truffle sniffing pig gets kidnapped, I believe. Uh, it's written by my pal Vanessa Block and I, I'm super excited for that. It sounded like the footage went over well among those in the audience. A uh, couple shout outs this week before we get into the trailers review uh, mailbag portion of uh, the show. Want to give a shout out to, to Billy Porter who, who um, you know, came out as HIV positive this week. It was a, a great cover story in Hollywood Reporter. Um, and, and I like that they really let him tell his story in his own words. They didn't try to like featureize it. It was just, um, it was very, very honest, and I'm glad that Billy, you know, spoke his truth and felt comfortable uh, coming out and, and sharing with us that, that part of himself, because that, that is a really, really big deal. Um, and, and I hope that we do see more, more celebrities um, talking about, you know, th their status or, or whatever. Um, yeah. Uh, also, congratulations, not just to Billy Porter, but to, to Matt Bellany this week, uh, announced that he's going to be you know, heading up this new subscription newsletter type of thing um, that's going to be, you know, invite only at the start, you know, like as, as all these things are these days, like Clubhouse, like it, it, it creates this idea of FOMO, like, oh, I got to get a Clubhouse invite. I, I you know, I got to get a Clubhouse invite. So the invite only thing I think is, is a pretty smart way to go. Um, Matt Bellamy, one of the, the most respected editors in Hollywood, I would love to work for him, you know, one day. Uh, Ran the Hollywood Reporter for years and years and years. And then, you know, that got acquired by, by Penske and there was, you know, some MRC meddling and stuff. And, uh, you know, I don't think that 
I don't think Matt's free of that because TPG is a big investor in this new venture and TPG, you know, also owns a big part of CAA. So it's like, is CAA going to funnel its news to this newsletter? Is this newsletter ever going to sort of put on, go on the offensive against CAA when it needs to, you know, we're going to find out, but um, I've, I've been working on developing a newsletter myself that is similar to Mike Allen's newsletter. Mike Allen, the long time, like, you know, Politico Axios guy or, you know, in, in DC uh, and someone, you know, ha- people have called me, the, like, they think I could be the Mike Allen of Hollywood. Someone in this release on Deadline called Matt Bellamy, the uh, the, the Mike Allen of, of Hollywood. Uh, you know, the plan is to go after 20, you know, top tier high-end journalists. You know, I, I don't know that, that, that uh, I'm seen as that anymore, which is uh, troubling because I still believe that, that, that I have, that I am. And then I think that with the right editor, uh, I think I have even yet to, to, reach my potential. Um, you know, what do I think that, that he's getting at with the, with the 20 top journalists or whatever thing? And, I, and that may be across all different vertical sports and politics. You know, I, I'm sure Matt would love to reunite with Kim Masters, who's, who's at The Hollywood Reporter, and they've been, you know, doing a podcast together on KCRW. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if Matt found a way to lure her away from Hollywood Reporter, but, it, you know, she's certainly expensive. Like that, that's going to take some, some money. So he, maybe he's not able to afford her. Maybe she doesn't care about money and, and she just wants to make the move because she doesn't want to work for Penske, you know, uh, or doesn't want to deal with the, the MRC, you know, meddling, um, which, I, you know, I, I don't know, but I'm going to be very curious to see who he gets it. If Matt gets any of his former Hollywood reporter people who all of whom loved working for him. Cause I think it's just, there's a lot of journalists in this business who have, this air of prestige about them. And it's totally, it's not that it's unearned. I think it was earned once upon a time and they just coast. They just coast on their reputations. And I don't want to name names as to who those people are. I think it's kind of obvious who they are. Um, Yeah. And they just bounce from, from one high profile publication to the next. And so they, it gives them this air of like importance because they've worked here and there and there and there. But it's like, these people cannot hold a job just like I couldn't. I mean, I've held a job for three years next month. I'll be a client for three years. A lot of these people have bounced around a lot more than I do. Uh, yeah. I just, I just don't see the original reporting that backs up their, their, you know, mid six figure salary or whatever. Uh, wanted to pay tribute to Charles Grodin who passed this week, uh, another one from, from Midnight Run after Yafet Koto a few months ago. Um, yeah, I wrote, I wrote a piece about him. I loved him in Midnight Run. He, he is the Duke to me. Not John Wayne's not the Duke. Charles Grodin is the Duke. I grew up watching the Beethoven movies. I'm not going to apologize for that. That's just my, that, that is how my generation knows Charles Grodin is as that guy. And as the guy from Clifford, the Martin Short movie, um, and even, you know, from like a little 48 second scene. And so I married an ax murder with Anthony LaPaglia. And, you know, in recent years, he's done a couple of things. He was in Noah Baumbach's while we we're young. Um, but I, I just, I always liked him. He, he was, he was funny. He was likable, even when he was kind of like uptight and, you know, exasperated and, uh, yeah, Charles Grodin, man, he nearly starting the graduate. Ended up uh, being the heartbreak kid and, and being in Rosemary's Baby. He had a he had a great career, and, and I do really want to track down that SNL episode, especially after reading more um, more about it. Got a bunch of trailers this week. Doctor Death on Peacock. This is the one where Joshua Jackson filled in for Jamie Dornan, and Jamie Dornan has the darkness to play a type of character like that. I just don't know if I could picture Jamie Dornan as a doctor. That that's where I had the tough time. Like, I don't know. I don't know if I could picture that. Uh, either way, we got Josh Jackson. We got Christian Slater, Alec Baldwin. I, this sounds like a, it looked like a pretty good story. Like it looked like a good story already that then got TV-ified. Um, so I am looking forward to that on Peacock. There was that little animated scene from Grandma's Boy that got released. Uh, I, I'm a huge Grandma's Boy fan. I think I wrote the very first review of Grandma's Boy for Ain't Cool News back in 2006. I don't know if they're working on an actual Grandma's Boy animated series, like built around Dante's dispensary or something, or if this was just an animated test, but either way, it was pretty cool. 
Uh, we saw a little 30-second tease for Steven Soderbergh's next movie, No Sudden Move, which has an amazing cast. It's uh, who John Hamm, Don Cheadle, Benicio Del Toro, um, and David Harbour, right. Written by Ed Solomon. It's going to premiere at Tribeca before making its way to HBO Max this summer. I'm pumped for that. Uh, Dave, also on FX, got a, a summer release date in June. So a lot of fun stuff coming out in June and July. Uh, we got a trailer for the Friends reunion, which just, you know, it actually did look like a lot of fun, but so many celebrities. I don't know why we need all these celebrities for, for the for Friends reunion. I, I'm watching a Friends reunion to see these six people, you know, and why it wasn't like Aisha Tyler, the one interviewing them, instead of James Corden. I don't know, but everybody looks fantastic. I mean, these people have barely aged a day. David Schwimmer in particular. It's like he was just like put on ice. Uh, we got a trailer for Fear Street. This is a trilogy that Netflix uh, is doing from Lee Janiak, as you can see behind me. Or maybe you can't see. Where is it? There we go. Here's all the books. There's all the Fear Street books right behind me. Uh, I grew up reading almost every Fear Street book. Uh, this, would have been, well, this would have been the first thing I would have done if I was a Hollywood executive. If I, if I had become a Hollywood executive in my early to mid-20s, like I should have, uh, Fear Street is the very first thing I would have done. It's very ambitious. They are, they are doing these back-to-back-to-back, uh, back to back, three weeks in a row. And they're rated R. That was the big thing this week that kind of, it, it did encourage me. Because the books are very PG-13. The movies are apparently rated R, even though they looked a little PG-13, I thought. Um, oh, sorry, excuse me. I just think this is something cool to look forward to on Netflix in the middle of the summer. Like, uh, you know, some people are really excited for like The Conjuring 3. Fuck that shit. I'd much rather watch Fear Street. That is my idea of, of uh, you know, a appointment horror viewing. Um, the Ice Road we got a trailer for. That movie looked crazy with Liam Neeson driving down a fucking road made of ice. There's gigantic trucks falling into the ice. It's crazy. Sign me up. And that, that is also on Netflix. It's crazy. Is there anything that's not on Netflix? Uh, Only Murders in the Building. We got a little, little tease for that. That's the Steve Martin show with Selena Gomez. That's on Hulu. I uh, got a first look at The Wonder Years, which I think looks like a hit. Like, what you do with this is you, you put Goldberg's as its lead in, and then you do Wonder I mean, you know, Don Cheadle's the narrator. He looks fantastic. I, I, I just like the cast that they assembled for it. Um, I always like Dulé Hill. They, they just they seem to nail the tone and the time period of everything. And, and th- that, that show is going to be a hit. Uh, I would just have it take over the Goldberg's time slot next, next year. I know Goldberg's got renewed for one more season, but I, I think after that, it's, it's, it's got to be done. We got to look at The Last Symbol starring Ashley Zuckerman from Manhattan and a teacher. Didn't really do it for me. Looked like, you know, generic network hack stuff. Why is it so simple? Why? Why? Can I tell the difference between this is a network show and this is a streamer show or an HBO show? Like, why do they look so different? Um, I don't even think I could get through The Lost Symbol. And I I loved like Angels and Demon and and, and Da Vinci Code, those books by Dan Brown. Lost Symbol, Inferno, those those books were like total slogs. Uh, And then the big trailers this week were Snake Eyes, which... You know, looked okay. I mean, it, it looked decent for a fucking G.I. Joe movie starring Henry Golding. Um, but, like, is anybody going to leave that movie being like, that was good. You guys got to check out Snake Eyes. Like, I know exactly what that movie's going to be. Dear Evan Hansen looked good. I know everybody was beating up on Ben Platt this week because he looks like a 30-year-old man playing an 18-year-old. Isn't that, are we used to that? Like, what happened to Dawson's Creek when everyone was 30 years old? Like, that's just how these things are, were, were made for a while. Um, I thought it looked good. It was a lot of trailer. It was like a three-minute trailer. It seemed like it kind of gave away the entire fucking movie. But the music was good. I never saw the play. Uh, the cast is great. And I, and I do like Ben Platt. Um, you know, movie big, big movie producer, son or not. He certainly has some talent. Uh, reviews. We got a bunch of reviews this week. Um, I mean, we talked about Spiral, how I was disappointed in that. Woman in the Window was terrible. Really, I, I don't know what I would recommend from that movie. Uh, 
those who wish me dead two and a half stars. Like it was fine. And, you know, as a bonus for, for my HBO Max subscription, absolutely. Can't wait to, to, to check it out. You know, if I had paid to see that in a theater, I would have been like, no, that was bad. <clears throat> the Shine is a little bit off of, uh, of Taylor Sheridan. The Bloom is off the rose a little bit. I mean, I didn't watch Yellowstone, but it just seems like, you know, from Sicario to, you know, Hell or High Water, Ooh, excuse me, to, to this movie, I don't know. Maybe he's just a better writer than he is a director. Um, maybe it, it was a casting thing because Joe Lee was just sorely, sorely miscast as a fucking like Montana smoke jumper. I thought the kid was good. I, I like Nick Holt and, and Aiden Gillen as the assassins. And um, sorry, excuse me. I forgot my bottle of water. So uh, I'm waterless. I liked, uh, I think it was John Bernthal and Karen Sengor. But like, yeah, it was the stars in this that bothered me. It was Jolie and then the Tyler Perry stuff. And Tyler Perry was okay, but like his character is, it was so stupid. Like he, he represents these powerful people, you know, and that's why, and so they have the assassins on retainer or whatever. And like, but like, I don't know. You gotta, you gotta explain some of that more in, in, that, in that whole situation. Like, would there be a, a sequel where, these powerful people keep coming after Finn Little, uh, Finn Cole, whatever the fuck. I don't even know what the kid's name is. You know, to keep him from from going public with his big revelation or anything. It just, it just seemed like a half-assed plot. I like The Dry, the new Eric Bana Australian thriller. It's not great. Uh, it felt a little long and a little flashback heavy. Um, but it was okay. It was definitely worth a watch. I'd recommend it. I'd also recommend Riders of Justice with the caveat that the tone was a little all over the place for me. This is ostensibly like a serious revenge movie, but then there are these sort of flights of, of foreign flights of fancy uh, with like weird bits of comedy that I do not think would fit into an American movie. And so they're forgiven because it's a European film, but it just didn't, um, did not gel for me. Those, mo those, those moments really took me out of, of things so like both of those are like two and a half star movies to me, even though I recommend both of them. Georgetown, another two and a half star movie. It was the week of two and a half star movies. Uh, Georgetown is the Christoph Waltz movie uh, where he plays Vanessa Redgrave's, you know, much younger husband, uh, you know, and they're part of the DC high society, but you know, the, the marriage is something of a sham. Uh, I also watched Love, Death and Robots volume two on Netflix uh, this week. Wasn't really intending to, uh, but, you know, the, some of those shorts, it's like seven, eight minutes. So you just watch one and then you go into the next. And before you know it, you got two left and it only takes a half an hour. So why not? Uh, good season. I, I, it was much more consistent. And I think that's because they didn't do 18 fucking things. They did eight. Um, and yeah, they were all good. And I don't really think that there was like a weak link in the bunch. So I would definitely recommend checking that out. It seemed uh, a lot deeper, too. It wasn't just like, here's some cool shit. And here's some, you know, anime boobs or, you know, whatever it is. Um, there was some real thought and depth behind behind these shorts and, and they made you feel something. So I would recommend. All right, we're going to wrap this up with some mailbag questions from Daniel Rashes. Hey, Jeff, have you heard anything about Born a Crime? The adaptation of the Trevor Noah uh, book. I was a big fan. And ever since Lupita Nyong'o was cast, it's been radio silence. Listen, that's half the projects in Hollywood. They make an announcement. They say, oh, we're making this movie. This person's cast. This person's adapting it, blah, 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 blah. But when it comes time to actually pay for the movie and make it, nobody wants to do it. So, I mean, and, and, and I hate to say it. I think that's going to be the case with a lot of these sort of more diverse film announcements. Uh, I think if they make great announcements for public relations, and then I just don't know, you know, is there enough of an audience for these movies and, and, and these shows. Now, I would have said that for something like the Harriet Tubman movie, and then that did really well. So like, I know that, you know, making more films with, with about black characters and, and starring black people and from black filmmakers, like it, it is going to, um, it's a good thing for the business. Not only do those stories need to be told, like Harriet Tubman, yeah, we needed, we needed a Harriet Tubman movie. Um, you know, my, my concern was that, well, white people aren't going to go see a Harriet Tubman, like black, it's, it's like the old idea that men won't go see chick flicks in quotations. 
uh, but women will go see action movies with men. The idea was that black people will go see movies with white people, but white people won't go see movies with black people. Now, I don't know how true that is, but what's clear is that there, there, the black audience or just audiences of color have grown enough to the point where we don't care if the white audience shows up. You know, we can make a hit out of this on our own. Um, so, you know, Born a Crime, I have not heard a, a single peep. We will see if it gets made and, and if it, it becomes a Harriet-like hit or if it's just a movie that, I don't know, kind of gets kind of gets lost in the shuffle. I, I don't even know what point I'm trying to, to make there um, other than I do think that there's a lot of white executives snapping up, you know, pr- black-led properties and things like that and I just don't know how much intention there really is to, to, to sink tens of millions of dollars into these projects and actually get them made, particularly to do them for theaters where then you have to add another 30 or $40 million on a marketing spend. You know, like even Harriet, I, I bet that they kept the marketing way down for that because once you, you can't market it, you can't, you can't almost put the same amount of money on it because it'll just never... I think, I think it would really struggle to make its money back. Um, Derek Walker Jr. asks, have you ever seen a movie that made you reach out to someone that you had a falling out with or someone that you had trouble forgiving? If so, what was the movie? That's a tricky question, Derek. That's heady. I mean, have I, have people I've had a falling out with. I mean, I don't know that a movie could bridge a divide between someone who I had a falling out with. You know, I only have falling outs when there's like a really specific reason um there are movies that have made me feel something and then i've called someone to tell them how much they mean to me whether that's a parent or a brother or whatever or or just a friend but um that's like to reinforce my love not to like get over my anger or hatred so i I guess the answer to that question derek is no uh, you also asked, do you think Discovery should reach out to former Searchlight chairman Steve Galula and Nancy Utley to run Warner Media for them? Wouldn't be a bad idea. I mean, the thing about Galula and Utley, first of all, people should be allowed to fucking retire in this business. Like, you never see people retire. And I actually had a lot of respect for Galula and Utley, the fact that they did retire. Maybe they were just being shown the door. They just didn't get along with Disney Brass anymore, but still wanted to keep making movies. Maybe they're just like, you know what? I've made 30 years worth of great movies and we won Best Picture a zillion times and now I don't have anything left to prove and I have all the money I could ever need and that's it. I'm gonna go retire and live on the beach and spend time with my grandkids. Like, I'd like to see more of those types of executives. Uh, The thing about Stephen and Nancy is that they didn't really make the kinds of movies that, you know, Warner Brothers makes that that go out on 4,000 screens and make a billion dollars. You know, I don't know what if Steve Galula and Nancy Alley would have greenlit like Joker. Uh, and so you can't just greenlight, you know, Guillermo del Toro's, uh, del, del Toro's uh, fish fucking movie, you know, like that could win Best Picture and it could make you a nice little chunk of change. But like you can't have an entire slate worth of those movies because the, the infrastructure of Warner Brothers is just so much larger than the infrastructure of Fox Searchlight. Um, and you need big movies to pay for that in- infrastructure. So while I love their tastes and would, you know, I-, I would certainly be dancing in the aisles if they got that job. I don't really anticipate Discovery going in that direction. Keltrick says, two questions this week. As a massive DC fan, maybe it's too early to tell. What can we expect from this David Zaslav guy? Is there any chance, chance DC will finally get its own studio? Doesn't DC have its own studio? I mean... It's a label. Do you really need? Why? Why can't? Why? Why does DC need its own studio? I mean, it just needs like you know a couple executives, really. Um, yeah, and I don't know much about David Zaslav other than he seems like a guy who likes to make deals, isn't afraid of risks, uh, and is a fucking grown up, um, which is something uh, you know Hollywood needs more of. Uh, Keltrick also asks, uh, have I heard any updates on three Michael B. Jordan movies I was looking forward to? Wrong Answer with Ryan Coogler, Methuselah with Danny Boyle, and The Liberators, the story of the uh, 761st African-American combat unit that led to the desegregation of armed forces. Have I heard any updates? Thanks and have a blessed weekend. Uh, No, 
haven't. Wrong answer with Ryan Coogler. That thing has been around for fucking ages. Uh, I mean, isn't that like about like a teacher who did he discover a cheating scandal or he engaged in a cheating scandal? I just don't know how much desire there is to like make a movie about like a black teacher who, who fucked up or like scammed the system or something. If, if that is in fact what, what it is about. Um, Methuselah with Danny Boyle, never understood it have never understood that project. Uh, no, I do not think that that will ever fucking happen, particularly with Danny Boyle directing. That's just me. Uh, and the Liberators, no, haven't heard anything about it. Again, one of those projects where, hey, this is a great story, you know, about an important story that needs to be told about diversity. You know, let's let's hire a writer to, to adapt the book. But then it just fucking sits there. I mean, like, I'm not trying to be an asshole, guys. I'm just telling you, like, this is the truth. We can, I could say that same thing about a, a hundred other projects. Now, these projects take a lot of time. And a lot of these projects were just announced in the last year or two, right? Um, you know, it could take seven, eight, 10 years to, to, to do these things right. Uh, cause otherwise you just rush them into production and then you're not helping anybody. Right. Cause, cause then the next person who wants to tell a diverse, inclusive story, someone points to the one that got rushed into production. They're like, well, you know, look what happened there. It sucked. But uh, again, this is a, there's just a lot more announcements than there are projects going into production. I can't, you know, I'm just looking at the, the, the headlines in my inbox. And if I were to say what I was really thinking, oh, oh boy, <laughs> that'll do it uh, for me. Uh, I am the Insnider. Follow me at, at the Insnider or Insnider Plus. <clears throat> Who knows what kind of bonus content you could get? Who knows what kind of Amazon to, you know, MGM deal tweets you could, you could see before the trades blast them out. Um, and maybe I'll just have to put the Spider-Man. I've been waiting for an opening to do the Spider-Man stuff, but we've had just the news has been so busy the last few weeks. I do want to talk about everything I'm hearing on Spider-Man. Maybe it'll be slow next week with a holiday weekend coming up. Uh, either way, I don't have to do the whole mask thing anymore. You guys, we can take the masks off. The CDC said it's safe. Go outside, get some vitamin D, enjoy the sun, enjoy your families. Have a great weekend. I'll see you next week. Bye.